You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. We're back this week to share another members episode with you. Yep, it's full court press time as far as packing here at the Civil War Podcast headquarters. We've got boxes, boxes, boxes everywhere. So many boxes. Yeah, it kind of looks like a box tornado blew through here. Um, But I think we'll actually be ready when the moving truck pulls up in a few days. Knock on wood. Uh, Anyway, it's been a big help sharing these members episodes with you guys uh, last weekend and this weekend so we can focus on packing stuff up. While we're going to end up sharing several members episodes with you while we get moved and then settled into our new place, we'll remind you there are 150 members episodes over on Patreon. Yep, and if you are a member of the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon and support the podcast in that way, you'll continue to get members' episodes and regular episodes ad-free. And with that shameless plug, I think we're ready to get this show on the road. everyone. Welcome to the ninth episode we've done for you members of the Strawfoot Brigade. Hello, y'all. With this members episode, we're going to look at the time in late 1861 and early 1862 when Jefferson Davis put Robert E. Lee in charge of the Confederacy's newly created Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and East Florida. As you guys will remember, when Lee resigned his commission in the U.S. Army in April 1861, he was offered command of Virginia's military forces with the rank of Major General. He then spent about six weeks working to set his home state on a war footing, and by the end of May, more than 40,000 Virginians were under arms. Shortly thereafter, however, Lee's service as a major general of state forces came to an end, and his career as a Confederate officer began. He was appointed a Confederate Brigadier General on May 14th, and then on June 8th, Virginia's governor, John Letcher, transferred to the Confederacy all the volunteers who had been mustered into the state service. Upon Jefferson Davis's recommendation, the Confederate Congress authorized Lee's advancement to full general, and he became the third-ranking officer in the Southern Army behind Samuel Cooper and Albert Sidney Johnston. But Robert E. Lee was a general without an army. He remained in Richmond, acting in the role of a military advisor to Jefferson Davis. He watched from a distance as a Confederate field army led by P.G.T. Beauregard and Joseph Johnston won the Battle of First Manassas in July. But then on July 28th, a week after the Confederate victory at First Manassas, 
Davis directed Lee to take the field and coordinate the Confederacy's defense of mountainous western Virginia. Southern troops there were led by two brigadier generals, John B. Floyd and Henry Wise, who were both ex-governors of Virginia, and their mutual antagonism had kept the Confederate forces from united effort, even though the Federals were invading the region. In sending Robert E. Lee to western Virginia, Davis hoped that the bickering Floyd and Wise would accept Lee's advice and not feel insulted or threatened by his presence. But Lee's mission was compromised from the very start, since he was not given orders to actually take command of Confederate forces in the region, but was instead supposed to use his rank and his forces of persuasion to make requests of the cantankerous local commanders and get them to cooperate with one another. However, as y'all will recall, although Lee succeeded in putting into motion an ambitious operation designed to throw back the Yankees who had advanced into the region, a combination of an overly complex plan, atrocious weather, and bad luck doomed the Confederate attack at Cheat Mountain. There were a series of further setbacks throughout September and October before Jefferson Davis recalled Lee to Richmond. Lee departed Western Virginia on October 30th, but the failure of his efforts there seriously diminished his military reputation among Southerners, who had yearned for a decisive success on the battlefield. Influential Richmond newspaper editor Edward A. Pollard spoke for many others when he described Lee as, quote, a general who had never fought a battle and whose extreme tenderness of blood induced him to depend exclusively upon the resources of strategy to attempt the achievement of victories without the cost of life, end quote. In simpler but no less harsh terms, Lee's critics referred to him as Granny Lee after his return from Western Virginia as a sarcastic, mocking reference to both his age and to his supposed hesitancy to actually come to grips with the enemy and engage in the dirty business of war. Lee was stung by the criticism, but he refused to publicly engage with his detractors, which he could have easily done by citing the obstinacy and incompetence of his subordinates. But rather than throw his subordinates under the bus, Lee took the responsibility for his unsuccessful efforts in western Virginia. And even when he spoke with Jefferson Davis about the campaign, it was with the understanding that no written record be made of the meeting so that no one else would know of his subordinates' failures. In his biography of Robert E. Lee, Emory Thomas notes that Lee's time in western Virginia wasn't entirely unproductive. Besides taking notice of a gray colt that he would eventually purchase later on and name Traveler, and besides growing the gray beard he would retain for the rest of his life, Emory Thomas notes that, quote, Lee made lessons of his experiences over the mountains. He demonstrated an appreciation of the stamina and courage of volunteer soldiers in the Southern Army. Lee's concern for the men of the Army inspired his quiet wrath when he found officers unwilling or unable to care for their needs or to lead them effectively. Lee discovered that deflation when an army poised to attack did not attack. By definition, moments of truth are rare. He reinforced his resolve to accept the chance for victory and not to shrink from opportunities to act. End quote. Emory Thomas goes on to explain that during his time in western Virginia, Lee also learned about people. 
It turned out that Lee himself lacked the temperament to directly confront his subordinates' jealousy, inexperience, or insubordination, but he did see to it that they were no longer in Virginia by the time the next campaigning season opened. Thomas writes that, quote, Lee could not permit himself to get visibly angry with these men when they failed, but he could indeed get rid of them, and he did. Beneath that benign veneer of good manners and thoughtfulness was Lee's professional zeal. He did not excuse stupidity, slovenliness, or sloth. Granny Lee might not confront fools to their faces in public or in writing, but generally did not suffer fools for long in his army. End quote. Of course, the flip side to that is that while Lee, throughout the war, did demonstrate a willingness to get rid of officers who, for one reason or another, he deemed unworthy of serving in Virginia, that usually meant they were simply transferred to another front, usually the Western Theater, which Lee never considered as important as his Virginia. For example, after the debacle in Western Virginia, John B. Floyd was transferred out to Tennessee, where his presence there had disastrous consequences for the unfortunate Confederate garrison at Fort Donelson. Well, at any rate, after Lee's return from Western Virginia, his time in Richmond would prove to be short. That was because within days of his arrival back in the Confederate capital, Jefferson Davis had appointed Lee to head a new military department encompassing South Carolina, Georgia, and Eastern Florida. And so that's how Robert E. Lee came to spend the next four months working at the thankless and virtually impossible job of trying to secure the Confederacy's vulnerable South Atlantic coastline against attacks by the Yankee Army and Navy. Since the governors of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida only knew of Robert E. Lee from what they had read in the newspapers, each one sought reassurance from Jefferson Davis that Lee was the right man to command the Confederacy's newest military department and protect their states against Yankee incursions. In response, on November 6, 1861, Davis telegraphed Florida Governor John Milton concerning Lee's appointment, praising him as, quote, an officer of the highest ability and reputation. But, through no fault of his own, Robert E. Lee's tenure as departmental commander along the South Atlantic coastline got off to a rocky start when the very day that he arrived in Charleston, South Carolina, November 7th, the Federals captured Port Royal Sound, only some 70 or so miles south of Charleston. Lee immediately set off for the threatened spot, setting up his headquarters at a place called Coosahatchee, which was situated on the river with that name that eventually flows into Port Royal Sound and was also located along the Savannah and Charleston Railroad. Lee established his headquarters in a house owned by Mrs. George Chisholm McKay of Savannah. Her son, Jack, had been Lee's classmate at West Point, and Lee had become close to the family during the winter of 1829, when he was at work on his first engineering assignment as an officer in the U.S. Army, that is, preparing the site for the construction of Fort Pulaski on Cockspur Island, Georgia. From his headquarters at Coosahatchee, Lee reported to Richmond the disheartening news that, quote, 
the enemy having complete possession of the water and inland navigation, commands all the islands on this coast and threatens both Savannah and Charleston and can come in his boats within four miles of this place, end quote. A few days later, in a letter to his daughter Mildred, Lee communicated his gloomy state of mind with regard to his new assignment by writing that he considered it, quote, another forlorn hope expedition, worse than Western Virginia. Which is saying something. And anyway, Lee quickly discovered that while there was nothing he could do about the Federal lodgemen at Port Royal, the Yankees, thankfully, except for small-scale raids up some of the numerous waterways in the vicinity of the Sound, they seemed content to merely consolidate rather than exploit their victory. But nevertheless, Lee's initial gloomy assessment of the state of affairs within his new command was confirmed by an inspection trip he took within two weeks of his arrival. Traveling from Charleston in the north down to Fernandina on the Atlantic coast of Florida in the south, Lee found that the military circumstances in the region all but dictated the failure of his mission to protect the vulnerable coastline. In a letter to his daughters, Annie and Agnes, Lee told them, quote, I have been down the coast to examine the defenses. They are poor indeed, and I have laid off work enough to employ our people for a month. I hope our enemy will be polite enough to wait for us. It is difficult to get our people to realize their position. End quote. In another letter to Annie, Lee said, quote, The people here do not seem to realize there is war. And several weeks later, writing to his son, Custis, he admitted, quote, I am dreadfully disappointed at the spirit here. They have all of a sudden realized the severities of war and what they must encounter and do not seem to be prepared for it. there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Besides fretting about the lack of will and commitment of the politicians and militia officers with whom he needed to work, 
Lee also found that nature herself seemed to have conspired against the Confederacy's ability to defend the South Atlantic coastal region. Along much of the coast, barrier islands lay sometimes miles from the mainland and were often separated from land by salt marshes, sounds, and meandering mazes of tidal streams and separated from each other by wide channels. The Federal Navy's superiority allowed its ships, with few exceptions, to maintain dominance in these coastal waters and in the ocean beyond. Robert E. Lee realized that that advantage would necessarily allow the Union to maintain the initiative by determining the time and place of any attack and compelling the Confederates to tie up lots of forces and resources defending the countless number of vulnerable points along the coastline. To fully defend their South Atlantic coastline, the Confederates would have to construct fortifications and mount batteries of heavy guns everywhere, and the new slaveholding republic lacked the manpower and resources to do that. It simply didn't have enough men or enough cannon to cover every channel, sound, and creek where the Yankees might attack. Near the northern end of the most vulnerable part of this coastline was Charleston, the very symbol of secession and toward the southern end was prosperous Savannah, Georgia. Between the two cities ran the 100-mile-long lifeline of Lee's department, the Charleston and Savannah Railroad, which crossed a number of rivers that could be ascended by light-draft vessels to within a few miles of the vital railroad bridges. North from the Savannah River to Charleston, Lee had about 6,800 soldiers he could call upon, while around Savannah itself there were another 5,500 men. Besides being painfully few in number, the troops Lee found in South Carolina, Georgia, and eastern Florida were mostly of dubious quality as far as equipment and training, and, except for those concentrated around Savannah, they were widely scattered around the region. Based upon his inspection tour and on his understanding of the Federal's advantages, Robert E. Lee decided on a defensive strategy embodied in three courses of action. First, he began to strengthen the defenses of Charleston and Savannah so that they could withstand the sort of bombardment the forts at Port Royal Sound had been subjected to. Second, he ordered the obstruction of waterways to keep Yankee vessels as far from the railroad as possible. Third, he positioned his meager forces to block the most likely Federal routes of advance toward the rail line. Within just a few weeks of his arrival, Lee had decided to abandon the dispersed perimeter defense strategy and instead issued orders to concentrate his forces along interior lines so that he could use the railroad to move troops, and in that way he would counter the Federal's seaborne mobility with railborne mobility of his own. Lee's decisions regarding strategy and how to allocate troops and resources often brought him into conflict with the politicians and leading citizens of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. For example, Lee had to tell South Carolina Governor Francis Pickens that a brigade of the state's militia, which on paper numbered over 3,400 men, in reality had less than half that number present for duty. He explained to Pickens that, quote, the strength of the enemy, as far as I am able to judge, exceeds the whole force that we have in the state. It can be thrown with great rapidity against any point and far outnumbers any force we can bring against it in the field. End quote. And to Georgia's Governor Brown, Lee had to explain the necessity of abandoning some of the barrier islands and the mainland port of Brunswick. Concerning Brunswick, Lee told Brown, quote, 
I find it impossible to obtain guns to secure it as I desire, and now everything is required to fortify the city of Savannah. End quote. So in the course of his command on the coast, Robert E. Lee felt duty-bound to say and write bad news to Southerners who didn't wish to confront the harsh consequences of fighting a war. The barrier islands in Georgia that Lee wanted to abandon produced valuable sea island cotton and were home to some of the state's wealthiest and most powerful families. And the coastal islands in South Carolina that the Federals had already occupied or directly threatened produced not only sea island cotton, but also vast quantities of rice. And more wealthy and powerful families in that region had already had to flee inland. Lee's departmental commander had to tell them that he not only had no plans to recover the islands, but that the area would likely remain in Union hands for the duration of the war. And as for Brunswick, Lee proposed not only to evacuate the place, but to destroy it in order to prevent the Yankees from using its harbors, harbor and buildings. Lee had determined that the best course of action in the face of the federal superiority was to withdraw his forces up the various rivers to points where the Confederate cannon could take on the federal gunboats. Lee explained that he had decided to abandon the vulnerable spots along the coast and instead use his meager forces in, quote, taking interior positions where we can meet the enemy on more equal terms. All our resources should be applied to those positions, end quote. Today, we're so familiar with Robert E. Lee's unassailable reputation as an icon of the Confederacy that it's probably difficult for us to wrap our minds around the fact that he could have been mocked as Granny Lee for his efforts in Western Virginia, and then that he would come up against the fierce criticism of naysayers during his coastal command. But nevertheless, those things happened. With regard to Lee's strategy for defending the South Atlantic coastline, Emory Thomas explains that, quote, Lee's plan was expedient and wise, but many of those people immediately involved were unimpressed. Mary Chestnut observed, Low country gentlemen curse Lee. Edmund Ruffin, after conversations with some South Carolinians, concluded, General Lee, though reputed to be an accomplished and great officer, is, I fear, too much of a red tapist to be an effective commander in the field. Lee's principal subordinate at Charleston, Roswell P. Ripley, came to despise Lee. Governor Pickens described Lee to Jefferson Davis as quiet and retiring. Pickens also informed the president, I do not know if it prevails elsewhere in the army, but I take the liberty to inform you that I fear the feeling of General Ripley towards General Lee may do injury to the public service. Ripley's habit is to say extreme things even before junior officers, and this is well calculated to do great injury to General Lee's command. End quote. Emory Thomas goes on to point out that despite the criticism he faced, Lee persisted in implementing his strategy for defending the coastline, and by the time he left the region, he'd begun to establish a chain of practical defensive positions. And as we mentioned back in episode number 67 in the show we did on horses and mules, it was during his tenure as department commander in the Low Country that Robert E. Lee acquired Traveler. Lee had actually first noticed the horse, then named Jeff Davis, back in Western Virginia in late 1861 and joked to the owner about acquiring the animal. 
Later in South Carolina, Lee did buy the Iron Gray Stallion, now named Greenbrier, for $200. Lee renamed him Traveler, rode him for the rest of the war, and elevated him to the pantheon of famous war horses. Lee also took time in January 1862 to visit his father's grave on Cumberland Island, Georgia. Robert E. Lee never really knew his father, Light Horse Harry Lee, and yet Lee had spent much of his life trying to both live up to his father's reputation as a Revolutionary War hero and live down the stain on Light Horse Harry's unsavory post-war reputation. Robert E. Lee's visit to his father's grave in 1862 was his first pilgrimage to the spot, and he wouldn't return until the year in which he himself was dying. On Sunday, March 2, 1862, Lee received a telegram from Jefferson Davis. It read, quote, if circumstances will, in your judgment, warrant your leaving, I wish to see you here with the least delay. End quote. Lee responded the same day and told Davis he would start his return journey to Richmond on Tuesday morning, the 4th. There was speculation in the Charleston Mercury newspaper that Lee was being recalled to the Capitol to serve as Jefferson Davis's Secretary of War. But the Confederate president didn't, in fact, tap Lee for that post. Instead, Davis seemed to wish to use Lee to bypass his, Davis's, critics in the Confederate Congress. You see, some of the Southern congressmen wanted to maneuver Davis out of his role of commander-in-chief by enacting legislation that would require the appointment of a Confederate general-in-chief like the Union armies had. But Jefferson Davis was determined to continue exercising his prerogative as commander-in-chief of the Confederate military forces, and so to prosecute the war effort more efficiently, and also to frustrate his political adversaries, Davis brought Lee back to Richmond, and Lee was, quote, charged with the conduct of military operations in the armies of the Confederacy, end quote. But, as Jefferson Davis intended, no one, not even Robert E. Lee, knew what that meant. In reality, Lee was in the same position he had been in in Western Virginia. He still had no actual command and possessed only the power of suggestion. Perhaps Jefferson Davis intended Lee to function as chief of staff to him as he continued to act out his role as commander-in-chief, but if so, this was never communicated to Lee. On March 13th, an order of the Secretary of War announced Lee's new position, such as it was, and a day later, Lee wrote Mary, quote, I do not see either advantage or pleasure in my duties, end quote. To his brother, Carter, he confessed, quote, I fear I shall be able to do little in the position assigned me and cannot hope to satisfy the feverish and excited expectation of our good people, end quote. From what can be read between the lines of that correspondence, Lee has by that time obviously discovered the political implications of his appointment, and he was not happy about them. Lee also knew that the Confederacy's fortunes were taking a turn for the worse. In February, the Federals had seized Roanoke Island on the coast of North Carolina. And then, just over a month after Lee left his departmental command and returned to Richmond, down in Georgia, Fort Pulaski, downstream from Savannah, fell to the Yankees. 
And out west in January, the Battle of Mill Springs in southeastern Kentucky had started the unraveling of Albert Sidney Johnston's defensive line. And that line was cracked wide open in February with the loss of Forts Henry and Donelson. And closer to home in Virginia, George McClellan had spent the winter organizing and training a huge federal army around Washington, an army that would no doubt soon begin to move once the New Year's campaigning season arrived with the fine spring weather. In a letter to his daughter Mary, Lee summarized the crisis facing the Confederacy in early 1862 and admitted that in the midst of the gathering gloom, he could only resolve to, quote, do my best, end quote. But up to that point in the Civil War, Robert E. Lee's best had failed to impress many people. He had done a fine enough job as a staff officer, organizing Virginia's state forces early on. But then from his failures in Western Virginia to his frustrations in the Low Country, his best had fallen short of success. In his biography of Lee, Emory Thomas speculates that perhaps during this time, Robert E. Lee may have questioned the Confederacy's odds of surviving the coming summer of 1862. And yet, as Thomas writes concerning 19-year-old Robert E. Lee Jr., the general, quote, offered his last son to a cause which seemed already lost. Rob Lee did not have to join the army. The Secretary of War specifically exempted students from the University of Virginia where Rob was enrolled. But Rob insisted, and his father relented. On the Ides of March 1862, Lee the General took Lee the aspiring private to secure his uniform and equipment. Then Rob went alone to enlist in the Rockbridge Artillery. Much later, Robert E. Lee Jr. remembered that, Though he was very careful in providing me with the least amount of baggage he thought necessary, I soon found by experience that he had given me a great deal too much. Emory Thomas continues the story, telling of how Rob set out to join his unit and entered the war on March 22nd in fine spirits and in the company of two friends. But at the same time, his father wrote to his mother, saying, quote, I think he ought to have had another pair of pants. We thought that was a touching note on which to end this episode, and a good point for us to leave Robert E. Lee for now. As those of you who have read ahead in the story already know, George McClellan will indeed finally move out with his huge federal army and will take it to the very gates of Richmond. But by the end of June 1862, Robert E. Lee will have been placed in command of the main Confederate field army, defending the Confederate capital, and in a series of spectacular successes during the Seven Days Battles, Lee will drive McClellan back from Richmond and save the rebel capital. And as we wrap things up for this member's episode, uh, we, or I, just wanted to thank you guys for your patience and understanding with the delay in getting this show out. As most of you might already know, um, I flew home to Pennsylvania uh, recently to help out after my dad suffered a massive heart attack. Uh, rather inconveniently, he had it while traveling about four hours away from our home in western Pennsylvania. But very conveniently, he had it while just a few miles away from one of the top three cardiac hospitals in the country uh, at Allentown in eastern PA. Uh, and after we spent some time at the hospital there, we were able to um, go home and get him home. And now, hopefully, uh, my dad's on the road to a full recovery. 
And so anyway, I just wanted to say thanks for waiting patiently for this episode's release and also for the messages of support and encouragement that quite a few of you sent during that time. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Those really meant a lot. And all right, with that, we really will wrap things up for this show. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.